Christian greetings to all of you this morning. Welcome you to this part of the service. It's uh, another joy to be in the house of the Lord this morning. And uh, I'm glad to be here. I hope you are too. Now, typically when I preach, I deliver what I would consider a a finished product sermon. I don't know if you consider it such or not, but I, I normally would. However, I am not necessarily intending to do that this morning. Uh, This message is is still in the making. I'm still working on it. But I believe there's there's a lot here that can stir our minds and that can challenge us uh, in the Word of God, from the Word of God this morning. What it is, I'm I'm beginning to prepare some messages for an assignment later this coming spring. And so... I'm working on on the one, and the one that I'm working on right now is titled, The Poverty of Prosperity. The Poverty of Prosperity. So we'll look this morning a bit at what the scripture has to say about that, and I'll also be uh, reading a a few little readings and illustrations that that help to to bring that maybe a little closer home to us this morning. The theme for these three messages that I'm I'm working on, the theme is the enemy's tactics. And there's a message on on disobedience. Uh, There's a message on complacency. And then there's a message on prosperity. Now, when we think of disobedience and we think of complacency, those immediately are negative thoughts in our minds. We don't want to be disobedient you know, and complacent. No, that's not, a, that's not a good thing. You know, immediately we think negative. But prosperity, at first glance, that seems to have some appeal, doesn't it? That seems to be, at least humanly speaking, we, that, that has some positive appeal to us. To be prosperous, uh, to have some wealth, to have some riches. However, the title itself suggests something very negative about prosperity. Something very negative about wealth and riches. The poverty of prosperity. Uh, There's something lacking. In other words, (laughs) prosperity isn't all that it's made out to be. The title would suggest that the pursuit and the end of prosperity is full of emptiness. Full of emptiness. The poverty of prosperity. Hetty Green was possibly America's greatest miser. She died many years ago, leaving an estate valued at over $1 million. But she always ate cold oatmeal because it cost too much to heat it. Her son had to suffer through a leg amputation unnecessarily because Hetty wasted so much time looking for a free clinic that he wasn't examined early enough. Hetty Green was wealthy, but she chose to live like a pauper. Eccentric? Yes. Crazy? 
perhaps, but nobody could prove it. She was so foolish that she hastened her own death when she suffered a stroke by becoming too excited over a discussion about the value of drinking skimmed milk. (laughs) We laugh at the foolishness of this eccentric old woman, but the fact is that this is a tragic illustration of many Christians. We have limitless wealth at our disposal, and yet we often choose to live in spiritual poverty. The poverty of prosperity. Now, Jesus talked a great deal about money and possessions, a great deal. I noted that 16 of the 38 parables have to do with money and possessions. Almost half have to do with money and possessions. And it's said that in the Gospels, one out of ten verses have to do with money and possessions. I think a total of like 288 verses in the Gospels deal with this this subject of money. It's been said that the Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, but over 2,000 verses on the subject of money and possessions. That's... That's revealing, isn't it? Doesn't that tell us something about about what is important? Where our focus needs to be? What is it telling us, anyway? What what really is it telling us? And so so the Bible, in the Gospels especially, we have all these verses that have to do somewhat with money and possessions, and yet... Sometimes we live like we have little direction. The choices we make, perhaps, uh, the financial decisions we make would appear like we have little direction in life in this matter. The truth is, I mean, I haven't, I haven't read all of these verses yet in preparation for this, but as I've read a lot of verses in the Old Testament and New Testament about prosperity, about wealth in general, the Bible has very little good to say about it. <laughs> very, very little good to say about it. In fact, the vast majority of the verses that I've read thus far on the subject speak of it in a negative light. Uh, they, they speak of its destructive nature. They caution us on the matter. They speak of its power to ruin people. It's rarely looked at as a positive thing in life. You know, we're told that money can't buy happiness, (laughs) but it seems that that many people just want to have a chance to prove it for themselves. (laughs) <laughs> they don't quite believe it. Let me, let me see. Let me see if it does. Or, and, and they always find out, you know what, I should have I believed it. <laughs> it. No, it doesn't. And it's easy, I think, for us to think sometimes that, well, that's just out there. That's people that haven't grown up in a real disciplined setting, perhaps. <laughs> people that, you know, that aren't, aren't living for the Lord and so forth and so on. And we, we can sort of make little excuses. But the truth is, we are not immune to this, to this uh, desire for more. We are not immune to that. 
we also get caught up in this idea that if we would just have a little bit more, if we would just just get just you know just a few more dollars or just whatever, that that life would just be a little easier, a little less stress. You know, things would be a little a little more happiness. All those type of things, we get caught up in that as well. But I wonder if too often we aren't catching our signals from the wrong place. As I thought about that, I realized that, that, that there's two worldviews, and this is not new as we think about you know, the Christian life and, and, and the world and society. There's two worldviews. This is looked at in different ways. And so society in general would, would view riches as something that, that we pursue out of selfishness. It's something that, that I want because it, it makes me happy. At least that's the, that's the conception. It makes me happy. Um, it, you know, I, I want more because it, I need to keep up with the others around me. Um, I want to live a comfortable life. I want to have an easy retirement. Um, you know, I want to fit in. I want to look right. I want to, I want to drive something that fits in with what my friends are driving. That nice vacations, all of that, that mindset is a part of society as it, as it comes to money, as it speaks of money. It's a very selfish ambition. It's, it's all about pleasing self. And if we're real honest, we would have to agree that that pursuit, that pursuit ends in ruin. Now, I mean, that pursuit, if not checked by the power of God, always ends in spiritual ruin for sure. And it often ends in physical ruin as well. If you think about addictions and so forth, lifestyle, all of that, it not only does it, well, yeah, it ends in spiritual ruin for sure, but it often ends in physical ruin as well. However, the Christian's pursuit or the Christian's purpose uh, for material gain is so much different than that. Instead of an inward focus and in, in how I can please self, the Christian has an outer focus. It's, it's how can I please God, first of all, and then how can I please others? It's so... So the money or the wealth that I have, how can I use that for the good of others? In other words, they get in order to give. And that's a, that's a biblical principle that we find in, I think, 1 Corinthians, uh, where Paul talks about that. God loves a cheerful giver, and a cheerful giver is one who is looking forward to giving. In other words, they are, they are planning their getting around their giving. They're hoping to give. And so the Christian's purpose in material gain has a lot to do with having an eye for the needs around them. And so it's, it's not about self as much as it's about God. It's about others. It's about pleasing them. And, and I say that worldview always ends in blessing. It always ends in blessing. For sure, spiritual blessing. Now, can we say it always ends in physical blessing? Perhaps not always. But yet, God cares for us. God meets our needs. 
And each one of you, we could go around the circle and, and, and you could give example that testify to that, that God meets your needs. Now, did you have everything you wanted? No, you probably didn't. But yet he met your needs. And you were blessed. I say that I think a lot of times we, we take our signals from the wrong places. Too often times I think we get caught up in, in society's view of, of what we should be getting, what we should be making, what we should be doing with our money, and we forget what the scripture has, actually says. So we get caught up in that drive of what society is looking for around us. For example, society says that a family of four needs to make at least $52,000 a year in order to, to live comfortably in order to be happy. <laughs> Society also says, or our government says, that, that if a family of eight makes less than $41,000 a year, that they are in bad poverty. That's, that's considered poverty. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I, I can tell you from past experience that it is not so, and there's many of you that can say the same thing. They did a poll some time ago. This was, I think, in, in 2013, I read. This poll was done. It was, they polled uh, men who, who owned between $1 million and $5 million in assets. Okay? And, and they asked them if they felt like they were wealthy. That was one of the, the questions. And only 28% of those men considered themselves to be wealthy. <laughs> Only 28% of those, and they, they owned between 1 million and 5 million in assets, but most of them didn't consider themselves to be wealthy. There was another poll done recently where, and this was just a lot of people like you and I, but one of the questions in that poll was, do you consider yourself to be, to be rich, to be wealthy? And the vast majority said no, regardless of how much they made. <laughs> I'm just saying, that's, that is the world system. That is the thought behind a, a lot of that. It's, we never have enough. If we just had a little bit more, and we have to, somehow they've built this scale where you have to make so much in order to be happy, to live comfortably. And I'm saying that I think a lot of times we get sucked into that train of thought and forget to realize what the Word of God has to say about money, about how we use our finances, about contentment, for example, about being content with what you have. The Apostle Paul said that I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And I had to think that, you know, the Apostle Paul, he lived in many states, <laughs> you could say. He, he, lived, he was in many situations in life. I mean, from Rome to, to the the jail in Philippi, to beatings, to all kinds of terrible abuse, uh, to nice places as well. He lived in a lot of different situations. And so what was the common denominator in, in all of those states? What was the common denominator in all those situations? It wasn't the house. It wasn't the clothes. It was Paul. Paul was the, he was the only common thing in all of those different uh, situations. And what that tells me is that 
Contentment is a decision that we make. It's something that we decide wherever we are in life, we can be content. It doesn't depend on the surroundings. It depends on on my attitude and my desire. Well, as I mentioned, the Bible has a lot to say about prosperity, about wealth. Let's just start looking at what the Bible has to say. Uh, Proverbs. Let's turn to Proverbs. There's um, a number of verses in Proverbs, and we're just going to look at, at several of them here. A number of verses in Proverbs that speak about wealth. Let's start in chapter 11, and we'll just go through a few chapters here and read a verse or two here and there. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 24. Now, we're thinking specifically this morning about how prosperity, the pursuit of prosperity, actually brings, brings us down. We're talking about the poverty of prosperity. We, this subject of, of money and possessions and finances is huge. Obviously, you can tell by how many verses I, I mentioned are in the Gospels and so forth in the Bible. And so... The gist of this message that I'm working on is the poverty of prosperity. So that's where we'll try to narrow our thoughts this morning. Uh, Proverbs 11, 24. There is that scattereth, and yet increaseth. And there is that withholdeth more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. Isn't that interesting? In other words, one man gives freely, but yet he gains more. And one man holds on to what he has, and yet he loses. That's that's so backwards from what human reasoning would say. Okay, verse 28. He that trusteth in his riches shall fall, but the righteous shall flourish as a branch. Okay, uh, chapter 13, verse 7. And this, this verse is, is, could be one of the key verses of the message, really. Proverbs 13, verse 7. There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. Think of the rich man and Lazarus. Wouldn't that be a great, great illustration, perhaps, of, of a verse like that? There is that maketh himself rich, and yet he has nothing. But there is that makes himself poor, yet hath great riches. Moving right along, uh, chapter 23. Chapter 23 in verses 4 and 5. Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. (laughs) You see... Human reasoning says that it's, it would do us well to make more money, to be wealthy, to, to hoard some, you know, all that stuff. But it says, don't work to be rich. Actually, stop thinking your own kind of thinking. Verse 5, wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Uh, let's go to chapter 28. One more verse here in Proverbs. Proverbs 28 and verse 22. He that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye, and considereth not that poverty shall come upon him. An evil eye, and he doesn't consider that poverty will come upon him. 
1923, and this is close to 100 years ago, but yet the, the principle still fits modern-day America. In 1923, at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago, Illinois, eight of the most powerful money men in the world gathered for a meeting. These eight, if they combined their resources and their assets, controlled more money than the U.S. Treasury. In that group were such men as Charles Schwab. He was the president of a steel company. Richard Whitney was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. And Arthur Cutton was a wheat speculator. Albert Fall was a presidential cabinet member, personally a very wealthy man. Jesse Livermore was the greatest bear on Wall Street in his generation. Leon Fraser was the president of the International Bank of Settlements. Ivan Kruger headed the largest monopoly. Quite an impressive group of people. Let's look at this same group later in life. Charles Schwab died penniless. Richard Whitney spent the rest of his life serving a sentence in Sing Sing Prison. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> I doubt he was singing in Sing Sing Prison. <laughs> it sounds like it was in China or something. I didn't look up that. But. Arthur Cutton, the great wheat speculator, became insolvent. Albert Fall was pardoned from a federal prison so he might die at home. Leon Fraser, the president of that big international bank, he committed suicide. Jesse Livermore, he committed suicide. Ivan Kruger, he committed suicide. Seven of those eight big money men had, had lives that were disasters before they left planet Earth. And it, it ends by saying here, what mistake did they make? Thinking that what they had and what they controlled belonged to them. That's sobering for us to consider. Once again, I say we are not immune to these, these selfish human nature traits. We are not immune to that. We also have the same tendencies to want, to want, to a point that, that it can destroy us. It can destroy our peace with God. It can destroy our relationships with one another because of selfish pursuits when it comes to money and possessions. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we're going to start at verse 10. And it's interesting here to note who's writing. And the title in my Bible in this section says, Riches are meaningless. Riches are meaningless. And who was writing? Do any of you younger children know who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Any of you younger children, or even, even up to age 14, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Okay, we believe it was Solomon. We believe it was Solomon. And as we well know, Solomon was the wealthiest man in the world in his day. And, and I think he's perhaps referred to as the wealthiest man that ever lived. We don't know that exactly. At least I didn't study into that in detail. But a very, very wealthy man. God blessed him abundantly. However, it's interesting to see, thinking of, of, of 
the blessings we have and also our, our tendency to be proud, it's, it's interesting to note how that even what God blesses us with can become the platform for pride. Isn't that interesting? God blessed him abundantly, and yet that very thing became a platform for pride in his life. Not only Solomon, but we could look at King Nebuchadnezzar, we could look at King Uzziah, uh, various, various ones. Okay, Ecclesiastes 5, starting at verse 10. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer or allow him to sleep. You see that? Let me just stop there a moment. People say, if I would just have a little more money. More money will help me. I'll be happier. Everything will be better. The Bible says it doesn't work that way. The more you have, the more stressful it is. It says it clearly here. The abundance of the rich will not allow him to sleep. And this is someone who knew that from experience, no doubt. Verse 13. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. In other words, just like he, Proverbs said, the riches just fly away. And so a lot of times in those, in those situations when you have rich people, it is spent, and, and, and their children don't even get to benefit from them sometimes. I think of those who have won the lottery and so forth. We hear stories about that, that that, that money comes in huge sums, and boom, just like that, it's spent. Illustration of that. Verse 15, as he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that hath labor for the wind? Now how did we come? We came with nothing. (laughs) And Solomon said, that's how we're going to go. All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. Does that sound like a fun life? We're talking about the life of a rich man here. (laughs) That doesn't sound fun to me. Verse 18, Behold that which I have seen. In other words, note what I have seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God hath given him, for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. In other words, a person who is giving God the credit for for what he has in life, life is beautiful, is rewarding, it's a blessing. He says he seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. That's a a contrast to the man who is consumed in, in wealth, who is consumed in, in getting the next dollar and making it big. Quite a contrast in life. Mental life as well. Of course, spiritual life. 
In fact, it affects all of life, all the different aspects of life. Well, let's now turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke uh, chapter 6. Let's note some other contrasting thoughts here that Jesus said. Luke chapter 6, and starting at verse 20. And you'll note here, he has some blessings, and then he has some woes. And you'll note that these blessings are not, they're not according to our human reasoning. They, they look backwards to us. But this is, this is what Jesus said here, verse 20 of Luke 6. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he didn't say, blessed are you poor, because you're going to suffer really bad. Life's going to be very hard, and you know, God will help you. But no, he said, blessed are the poor, because yours is the kingdom of heaven, of all things. Verse 21, blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast, your name, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. Okay, so Jesus gives a list of things that at first glance would appear to be negative. But yet he says, there's great blessing and reward hidden behind that. Okay, now let's note the other things that at first glance would appear to be positive, would appear to be something that we like. Verse 24, but yet he says, woe about these things. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. I'm saying it's, it's, a, it's a backward way of thinking compared to our, our normal human reasoning. And I noticed that in, in the Gospels, Jesus spoke about that different times. And we won't look at them right now. But it's not life. Life really, real abundant life is not about physical things. It really isn't. Real abundant life is about spiritual things. And it's so hard for us to really latch on to that because we're human. Because we are physical. We live on this earth. We're, we, we connect often with, with people and we work with people. And, and we're just a part of that society that has that worldview. And so we find ourselves getting caught up in those same types of things. But Jesus makes it clear time and time again that real life, real abundance, real riches really come through our relationship with Jesus Christ. It, it comes through spiritual means, first of all. Now, I already mentioned, and we won't turn there, but, but over in Luke chapter 16, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Or I think our Sunday school lesson last week titled it, 
the rich man and the poor man. But I ask you to consider who really was rich and who really was poor. Who really was rich and who really was poor in that story? Turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And perhaps this passage here could be more of a text. You know, if if there was a quote text for this sermon, perhaps this passage could be that. We have here the parable of the rich fool. We'll start reading at verse 13. And we're going to read down here through the end of, uh, no, not the end of the chapter, uh, through verse 34. Follow along. Okay, before I start, though, I'm gonna just, we're going to look at it and we're going to note four things in this, in this passage here. In verse, for, in verse 15, we're going to see the truth. And in verses 16 through 21, we see the illustration that Jesus gave, which I'm going to call the tragedy. Okay, so we have the truth, then we have the tragedy, And then verses 22 through 30, we have the challenge. And then verses 31 through 34, we have uh, the solution, or or we could say the cure, if we're looking for for unique words. Um, The truth, the tragedy, the challenge, and the cure. Okay, verse 13. And one of the companies said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, here's the truth, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Okay, now here's the illustration, which is a tragedy. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns, and I will build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Okay, now here's some challenge for us. Verse 21, 2. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for your body, what ye shall put on. In other words, don't worry about those things. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them, how much more are ye better than they? Better than the fowls, excuse me. And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then not be able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothe the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye that which ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have needed these things. Now, here's the cure, here's the solution. 
But seek ye the kingdom of God, and these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see, the common belief today is that prosperity equals quality of life. The more you have, the better life is. That's the common belief. But Jesus said in verse 15 that that's not true. He said real living, real abundance It does not consist of the things that you possess. It's not in material possessions. That that has nothing to do with it. That's not where it really is. Down in verse 23, he says, it's not even about our food and clothes. That's That's not where real joy is. That's not where it is either. It's not in what we eat. It's not in what we wear, and you could say, you know, broader than that. He's speaking about those physical things, our food and our clothes and our, our houses and our cars and all, all the little stuff of life. It's not in that. That's not where real abundance is found. That's not where real living is, he's saying. Verse 30, he says, however, that is what the world believes. The world believes that's where it's at. And, and we, we see that. But verse 31, he says, real living, real, real prosperity, real abundance of life comes in seeking Him. It comes in seeking God. A couple of verses, once again, from Proverbs that speaks of that. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow to it. Now you remember how back in Ecclesiastes and some of those other verses where it made it so clear that the life of wealthy people is not a good life. It's a sorrowful life. It's a stressful life. And have you ever noticed that, that people that are consumed with wealth and so forth, they're cranky people. They're not fun to be around. Think of Scrooge or something like that. You know, it, it's that kind of people. They're so self-centered, so self-focused. They don't have time for other people. The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. Uh, Proverbs 22.4 By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Well, that's what we all want. We all want riches. We all want honor. We all want life. This is how you get it, the Bible says. Humility and Fearing God. You see, it's, it's, a, it's a completely different game plan from the world's view, from their system. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about others. Note once again here, what Jesus said is the solution to man's money problem. Verse 33, he said, sell and give. <laughs> sell and give. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. And I remember the rich young man 
that we read about in Matthew, maybe chapter 19. The rich young man that came to Jesus and he said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and uh, Jesus said, well, I forget exactly how it went, but he, he ended up saying that, well, he's done this and he's done that and he's done this and he's done that and, and he's done a lot of really good things. And Jesus said, okay, that's, that's great, very good. One more thing. One thing you lack, he said. What was it? What did, what did he lack? He said, one thing you need to do, sell all you have, sell what you have and give to the poor. And what, is the, what, what was the response of that man? It says he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Those things had such a hold on his life. Yeah, I mean, he had everything else straight, you could say. But I would say, truth is, if he wasn't able to let, if, that, if his money and possessions were holding him that tight, then the other things in his life were being tainted by that as well. He, the other things in his life weren't completely straight either. But, but he said, I'm doing that, I'm doing that, I'm doing that. But then he wasn't able to let go of his money, of his possessions. One thing thou lackest. wonder if perhaps that one thing gets in our way as well sometimes. Here's a quote from John Wesley. I fear... Wherever riches have increased, let me start again. I fear that wherever riches have increased the essence of religion, the mind that was in Christ has decreased in the same proportion. Therefore, I do not see how it is possible in the nature of things for any revival of true religion to continue long. For religion must necessarily produce both industry and frugality. And these cannot but produce riches. In other words, he's saying that people who serve the Lord and love the Lord and that, and that, and that have a desire to be, to be of use, they naturally are going to make some money. <laughs> and and you, can, you can understand that. Good work ethics, good discipline, those things aid in, in being prosperous. So those kind of people, he says, they make, they're going to make money. These cannot but produce riches, he says. But as riches increase, so will pride, anger, and love of the world in all its branches. What way then can we take that our money may not sink us to the nether, nethermost hell? There is one way and there is no other under heaven. If those who gain all they can and save all they can will likewise give all they can, then the more they gain, the more they will grow in grace and the more treasure they will lay up in heaven. That's, that was John Wesley's idea and I say he's right on track. Okay. Turn to Revelation 3 yet. One last one last passage. Revelation 3. And I would like to note one of the churches here. The church at Laodicea. Let's see what Jesus said about them. 
Let's see what they said about themselves. Let's see what the truth was, though. Starting at verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so that's, that's important for us to realize because this wasn't just a preacher writing this letter. This wasn't just anyone. This was Jesus Christ who was coming to them. And, and that speaks of authority. And that speaks of knowledge of the real situation, okay? So that's, that means something. Verse 15. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now note what they say. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. But knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. We'll stop right there. Once again, we note who was speaking. We note what he knew about them. We note what they said about themselves, which was false. And we note what, he ha- what the- we note what Jesus said they need to do in order to fix the problem. There was a remedy there. And in the midst of all that, in the midst of that mess, the mess of their lives, it, it just blesses my heart to see what Jesus' response is to them and to us as well in the mess of our lives. As many as I love, I rebuke and chase and be zealous therefore and repent. That invitation to the church at Laodicea was still open. It was still open. Talk about the mercy and love of God. A church that, that, God, that Jesus said, you are so nasty to me, you make me sick on the stomach, basically, in other words. You make me sick so much, I'm going to spew you out, which is the term, it's really the term vomiting. It's that idea. I'm going to vomit you out because you're making me sick on the stomach. It's, you're, that, you're that bad. But yet he says, I love you. I love you, and I'm giving you a chance to repent. Anyway, that, that, that speaks to me this morning because we find ourselves from time to time in similar situations in life. But let's speak just a moment about uh, their, the, the town there, the city of Laodicea. It was a very rich, wealthy town. Uh, they, they had many businesses. They had uh, many factories. Uh, they manufactured clothing. They made a lot of medicines. They were the center of banking. Uh, it's interesting to note one of their, one of their famous medications was ISAV, <laughs> which Jesus talks about here. He said, you need some of that. Um, they also, this, and the city was so wealthy that at one point, I think maybe back in AD 60 I read, when, when it was destroyed largely by earthquake, they were so wealthy they said, we'll fix it ourselves. We're going to rebuild. We don't want your money, Rome. We don't want your money, Caesar. Get out. We've got enough. We can handle it. <laughs> that, that, was their, that was their attitude about life. Just, we got it covered. Well, the church was also wealthy. Uh, the church here boasted of, of having great riches, being increased with goods, 
they said they had no needs. They were just really satisfied with where they were in life. They, there was nothing urgent about their spiritual life. They were, they were just lukewarm. They were just lukewarm. However, it appears, though, that their material riches blinded their eyes to their real need of spiritual riches. Yes, they, physically they were very, very rich and well-to-do, but spiritually, Jesus said, you are poor and you're blind and you're miserable and you're naked and you're wretched. Awful description. But yet they said, we're fine, we're good. And Jesus said, no. No, you're not. The poverty of prosperity. I wonder this morning how Jesus sees you and me. I wonder how he does. I want to read a poem yet. And it's, it's not the shortest poem in the world. But I would like to, to end with this because it, it kind of ties this passage into to us as a church. The church and the world walked far apart on the changing shore of time. The world was singing a giddy song and the church a hymn sublime. Come, give me your hand, said the merry world, and then walk with me this way. But the good church hid her snowy hand and solemnly answered, Nay, I will not give you my hand at all, and I will not walk with you. Your way is the way of eternal death, and your words are all untrue. Nay, walk with me a little space, said the world with a kindly air. The road I walk is a pleasant road, and the sun shines always there. Your way is narrow and thorny and rough, while mine is flowery and smooth. Your lot is sad with reproach and toil, but in rounds of joy I move. My way, you can see, is a broad, fair one, and my gate is high and wide. There is room enough for you and me, and we'll travel side by side. Half shyly, the church approached the world and gave him her hand of snow, and the false world grasped it and walked along and whispered in accents low, Your dress is too simple to please my taste. I have gold and pearls to wear. Rich velvets and silks for your graceful form and diamonds to deck your hair. The church looked down at her plain white robes and then at the dazzling world and blushed as she saw his handsome lip with a smile contemptuous curled. I will change my dress for a costlier one, said the church with a smile of grace. Then her pure white garment drifted away and the world gave in their place. Beautiful satins and fashionable silks and roses and gems and pearls and over her forehead, her bright hair fell and waved in a thousand curls. Your house is too plain, said the proud old world. Let us build you one like mine, with kitchen for feasting and parlor for play and furniture ever so fine. So he built her a costly, beautiful house, splendid it was to behold. Her sons and daughters met frequently there, shining in purple and gold. And fair and festival frolics untold were held in the place of prayer. The angel of mercy rebuked the church and whispered, I know thy sin. Then the church looked sad and anxiously longed to gather the children in. But some were away at the midnight ball and others were at the play and some were drinking in gay saloons and the angel went away. Then said the world in soothing tones, Your much-loved ones mean no harm, merely indulging in innocent sports. So she leaned on his proffered arm and smiled and chatted and gathered flowers and walked along with the world while countless millions of precious souls were hungering for truth untold. Your preachers are all too old and plain, 
said the gay world with a sneer. They frighten my children with dreadful tales, which I do not like to hear. They talk of judgments and fire and pain and the doom of darkest night. They warn of a place that should not be thus spoken to ears polite. I will send you some of a better stamp, more brilliant and gay and fast, who will show how men may live as they list and go to heaven at last. The Father is merciful, great and good, loving and tender and kind. Do you think he'd take one child to heaven and leave another in behind? So she called for pleasing and gay divines, deemed gifted and great and learned, and the plain old men that had preached the cross were out of her pulpits turned. Then Mammon came in and supported the church and rented a prominent, prominent pew, and preaching and singing in floral display soon proclaimed a gospel new. You give too much to the poor, said the world, far more than you ought to do. Though the poor need shelter, food, and clothes, why thus need it trouble you? Go take your money and buy rich robes and horses and carriages fine and pearls and jewels and dainty food, the rarest and costliest wine. My children, they dote on all such things, and if you love, and if you their love would win, you must do as they do and walk in the way, the flowery way therein. The church, her purse strings tightly held and gracefully lowered her head and simpered, I've given too much away. I will do, sir, as you have said. So the poor were turned from the door in scorn. She heard not the orphans cry as she drew her beautiful robes aside as the widows went weeping by. They of the church and they of the world journeyed closely, hand and heart, and none but the master who knoweth all could discern the two apart. Then the church sat down with ease and said, I am rich and in goods increased. I have need of nothing and naught to do but to laugh and dance and feast. The sly world heard her and laughed within and mockingly set aside, The church has fallen, the beautiful church. Her shame is her boast and pride. Thus her witnessing power, alas, was lost and perilous times came in, the time of the end so often foretold of form and pleasure and sin. Then the angel drew near the mercy seat and whispered in sighs her name. And the saints their anthems of rapture hushed and covered their heads with shame. A voice came down from the hush of heaven, from him who sat on the throne. I know thy works and what thou hast said, but alas, thou hast not known that thou art poor and naked and blind, with pride and ruin enthralled. The expectant bride of a heavenly groom is the harlot of the world. Thou hast ceased to watch for that blessed hope, hast fallen from zeal and grace, so now, alas, I must cast thee out and blot thy name from its place. But from the sides of Harlot Church, while she sleeps in indolent shame, will be taken the remnant who keep God's word and honor his holy name. By the word of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb, they overcame the world. For those who keep their garments clean shall walk with him in white, in the day when he comes to claim his own to make his jewels bright. Not the prettiest picture for us to, to think of. And yet it ends with a call to faithfulness. We could look at that poem in different ways. Uh, it, could be, it could be looked at along the subject of gradualism or complacency, lukewarmness. But it also speaks of a desire for more, a desire to be like the world, to be prosperous, to look better, to be a likable kind of church. 
It speaks about that as well. You see, true wealth is not measured according to man's standards, but true wealth is measured according to God's standard, according to God's word. And while the pursuit of prosperity produces poverty, the pursuit of Jesus Christ produces peace and real riches. It certainly does. Uh, We sang that song this morning, which I thought of right away, because it says, Oh, how happy are they who their Savior obey and have laid up their treasures above. And and that's my call for each of us this morning. As we go about life, to have a heavenly focus as we make our financial decisions, as we look at our money and our possessions, to do such uh, with a heavenly focus in view. May the Lord bless you. We'll call for a song.